This is All the President's Minutes, and I'm your host, Blake Howard. In fact, I'm the producer of all the One Heat Minute productions. First and foremost, I just wanted to reach out with my empathy and solidarity for everyone in the United States of America, the African-American community, who once again are being forced to riot to be heard in the face of overwhelming and brazen police brutality. When I conceived of this show, I thought that it would be a great landing zone for conversations about cinema, about journalism, about history and about politics and where those things intersect. The show will go on. However, just some of the episodes that you're going to hear in the coming run of episodes have occurred before any of the events over the last week have unfolded. I once again want to wish my empathy and solidarity from Australia to my American brothers and sisters and to my dear friends and wish them safety in their protest, in their peaceful protest. And this is not unique to the United States. And any Australian who is listening has to have the morality and the fortitude to acknowledge that this lucky country that I feel guilty for continually saying that I'm lucky that I live in is built on the blood of our own First Nations peoples and Indigenous Australians continue to suffer the same plight as African-American citizens in the United States. And whether it's by agenda or legitimate legal restrictions, Australian press continue to be suffocated. And on this show, we're going to talk about it. Thank you for supporting. Thank you for listening. Let's get into the show. And you have more in common with a white author than you have with someone who's against all literature. So why must we always concentrate on color or on religion or this? There are other ways of connecting men. I'll tell you this. When I left this country in 1948, I left this country for one reason only, one reason. I didn't care where I went. I might have gone to Hong Kong. I might have gone to Timbuktu. I ended up in Paris on the streets of Paris. With $40 in my pocket on the theory that nothing worse could happen to me there than it already happened to me here. You talk about making it as a writer by yourself, you had to be able then to turn up all the antenna with which you live because once you turn your back on this society, you may die. You may die. And it's very hard to be a typewriter and concentrate on that if you're afraid of the world around you. The years I lived in Paris did one thing for me. They released me from that particular social terror, which was not the paranoia of my own mind, but a real social danger visible in the face of every cop, every boss, Everybody. I don't know what most white people in this country feel, but I can only include what they feel from the state of their institutions. I don't know if white Christians hate Negroes or not, but I know that we have a Christian church which is white and a Christian church which is, which is black. I know, as Malcolm X once put it, that the most segregated hour in American life is high noon on Sunday. That says a great deal for me about a Christian nation. It means that I can't afford to trust most white Christians and certainly cannot trust the Christian church. I don't know whether the labor unions and their bosses really hate me. That doesn't matter, but I know I'm not in their unions. I don't know if the real estate lobby is anything against black people, but I know the real estate lobbies keep me in the ghetto. 
I don't know if the Board of Education hates black people, but I know the textbooks I give my children to read and the schools that we have to go to. Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children, on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen. This is the 50th episode of All the President's Minutes. It was recorded prior to recent events, uh, and and I, I can say unequivocally that it was one of my favorite episodes that we've recorded of the show so far. It features the recently retired, incredibly wise, and just completely effortlessly insightful Kenny Turin, former film critic for the LA Times and a man who worked in the offices of the Washington Post at the time that the Watergate story broke. I hope you enjoy the episode. Thank you for supporting us. Thank you for coming along with us and having this dialogue. And uh, I hope you enjoy the episode. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Joining me is a critical mind that is called by A.O. Scott Maestro. So that's a compliment in and of itself. Is a former staff writer of the Washington Post. He's one of the most influential critical voices in the world and particularly in Tinseltown in Hollywood via the LA Times. And really in a movie that ends with impeachment is the only guest that has been called to be impeached by none other than James Cameron. It is my distinct pleasure to speak to one of a man, who, one of the most infamous film critics in the world, one of the one of the great film minds, and if you've listened to our episode uh, already, episode thirty six with great Justin Chang, you would hear um, just how effusively people talk about this guy, Candy Turin. Welcome to all the President's Minutes. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much for being a part of the show. I, as with every episode of any show that I've done, whether it's One Heat Minute or this show, um, it's it's kind of, uh, we try and create a, a bit of a unique space to sort of pour over something. And um, it's it's a it's a real honor to get to talk to you because I wouldn't have thought without, you know, uh, it's like the six degrees, uh, the six degrees of separation technique of getting some wonderful guests that I get to talk to on this show. So I'm really pleased that I get to talk to you. No, it's great. I'm glad Justin put in a good word for me. You know, this is the way things are supposed to work. <laughs> I couldn't agree with you more. Now, before we get, before we get cracking into, obviously, you as a, your, your critical mind, um, I want to just take a quick pause because usually the way that it goes on this show, whether I'm talking to different journalists and, and I've been really lucky so far to talk to a couple of journalists who have worked for the Washington Post or who have worked worked in Washington and in bureaus, etc. But am I right in saying that you worked at the Post around the time that some of this stuff was happening? Yes, no. I mean, it sounds like I'm saying, you know, I was with Pharaoh at the Pyramid, <laughs> but, uh, you know... Uh. I was at the Washington Post, you know, from 1969 to 1978. I was there for the entire Watergate business. I had nothing to do, you know, I was not surprisingly in the entertainment section. I wrote about you know movies and features. I was not part of political coverage, but I was there. I knew all the people, you know, involved. It was, uh, it was quite something. How, how does it, 
can can I ask you about the energy of what it feels like when something like this is going down? Because, you know, I think that when big stories break or, you know, whether and, and we can sometimes see it in the entertainment industry, like when big stories break, it's drop everything, it's go and do it. How long did this story feel like it was simmering before it was the drop everything story? Like that's one thing I wonder is you as the, that sort of first person, we can probably dive into some of those details in your minute, but it was, how long was it before it was like, it was permeating through the office and permeating through every department that like, this was the biggest story that was happening. You know, there was almost no time to think that. Yes. I mean, everything felt so day to day. So minute to minute, there was stuff to be done. Yes. There was not real time to take a step back. And I say this as someone who knew Carl pretty well and who watched this happen. Nobody had the moment to step back and say, boy, this is really something. This is going to be big. People just were following the story. Yes. That was just kind of the drive. And that's what it felt like. And I think really the moment it really, believe it or not, the moment it sank in for me was the afternoon that Nixon resigned. And I literally, the post office is walking distance from the White House. And I literally walked out of the building and just walked to the White House just to kind of be in the vicinity, just to kind of let it all sink in. It almost didn't sink in till then. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. All right. Well, look, I have to ask, uh, I mean, now that you're officially retired, I want to say thank you for flexing once again your uh, film critical mind to talk to us on this program. So it's it's really great. We, um, for some reason, uh, if I can, I like to give milestone minutes to, you know, some of the great people that I get to talk to. And this minute is for all of its quiet and all of its simplicity, it's just a really beautifully orchestrated minute. It's just another one that is showcasing the wonderful Robert Redford. Now, you know, you being a critic uh, in your career, and I know that you've got the personal connection, so it might be hard for that cognitive distance, but I just wonder, are there other films for you that scratch the itch that this movie does about being so on time? Because when I look at this movie, it's being it's being produced essentially from 1974. It comes out January of 76. It's about events that, lead from 72 to 74 ultimately and it comes out and it's like the topic du jour it's the unimaginable thing right now we're in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic it's like imagining and you hear these whispers of like who's got the rights to COVID-19 the movie um, or the TV show or whatever but is there other movies that you can think of in in your long career in your in your experience that seem to capture zeitgeist and, and seem to hold up because a lot of other movies for me that try and do what all the president's men does really fail and fail pretty, 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 uh, titanically. If, if, if I, if I could be glib a little bit. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, that's a very good point. And I think, you know, Robert Redford, who I think was a guy who originally bought the rights to the book was very prescient in seeing that this story was going to not go away and was going to be something that was going to uh, be worth hanging on to, worth filming. You know, off the top of my head, the only, and again, I'd have to check the date. I don't know how much afterwards it was from the event, but one film that popped into my mind that I remember having some of the same contemporaneous feeling about was uh, Paul Greengrass's United 93. Yes about the, uh, the the plane that, you know, one of the 9-11 planes 
that felt to me almost uncomfortably close to the event. Absolutely. Uh, but I, I don't, I don't have uh, the calendar in front of me. I don't know actually what, how, how many years elapsed, but it's rare for a film this good to be both this good and this right on the moment in terms of time. And staying and staying on time. That's one of those things. Yeah, I totally agree with you. United 93, a, a really, a really strange one. And it's the same. United 93 has some of those strange uh, moments in it as well when you're watching and you hear, oh, the, the, the air traffic controller guy here, this actor who's so terrific. You're like, wow, he's great. Where's what's he in? And like, no, that's the guy. <laughs> that's the actual. That's the that's the air. That's the guy who did it. And you're like, what? What is this movie? You know, is this you know Abbas Kiristami's close up? What the hell is going on? It's got some weird. It's got some weird things happening. But I, I think that 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 definitely works for it. But yeah, the the night you know obviously big historical events inspire a lot of you know cinematic retellings, and I think that that's that's you know definitely one of those ones that. Is had the immediacy and, and definitely worked. Well, let's get you back to let's get you back to what is in the film 1972, and let's get you back to the the post newsroom and 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 all my guests in the previous 49 episodes have talked about oh the newsroom's great and we all sort of uh, you know we've we've been getting I think uh, retroactively nostalgic for a place we don't we've never been um, uh, you know. Papers on desks and phone books and filing cabinets and clanking away on typewriters. Talking about feeling weird, when you saw this movie, is it weird to see the Washington Post newsroom? Is it really as good as a lot of those sort of what now feel like anecdotal uh, accounts of like, yes, it was exactly like that? Uh, is it, was it weird to look at this newsroom on this uh, on this film? I tell you, when I, you know, I saw, you know, I was at the world premiere of the film and, uh, and then I probably about 20, 30 years passed before I saw it again. They had some kind of anniversary screening. And when I saw it that second time, maybe 25 years after the first screening, I, when it ended, I almost couldn't get out of my seat. <laughs> it was so much like, I'm serious. I mean, I was the last person out of the theater and I could barely kind of communicate with anyone. It was the closest I will ever get to actual time travel. Yes. You know, I really said, Oh my God, you know, it struck me. So, you know, it struck everyone at the time. It continues to strike people. You know what you're talking about, George Jenkins, uh, you know, art direction, the production design, how much trouble they took to get it right. You know, buying desks from the same furniture using, I think it was 75 boxes of discarded the Washington post trash to, you know, to uh, put place around the desk. But when you experience it again after that period of time, I was really literally staggered by the amount of trouble they went to get every single detail right. Now, that doesn't make a film great. <laughs> other things that make this film great, but yes. it's very, very, very impressive. And believe me, the realism is just astonishing. Well, with that moment, let's jump into a little bit of uh, Split, the gorgeous Gordon Willis and Alan Jay Pakula's signature split diopter um, so that we can watch this great little conversation unfold uh, in front of us. Kenny and I are going to listen along, folks. You guys are going to listen along too. And then we're going to come back and talk about it. As you know, sir, the check has your name on it. We were doing a story on this, and I was wondering if you would care to comment or explain. Uh, I uh, turn all my money over to the committee. What committee is that, sir? The committee to reelect? Yes, yes. Why would you do that? I raised 
fees or a lot of money. I'm, uh, I'm Midwest Finance Chairman. For the committee to re-elect. Hello? Yeah, yes, that's right. Now, how do you think your check got into the bank account of Watergate burglar? I'm uh, a proper citizen. What I do is proper. Oh, I, I understand. I've just been through a terrible ordeal. My neighbor's wife has been kidnapped. Oh, um, well, how do you think your check got into Barker's account, though? I think one of the funnest things that I've gotten to do recently is is pour over this minute and then just take sort of this, I might call it a strange glee um, in the both the voice actor's performance and then the literal reality of Ken Dahlberg's situation. So it's it's just such a, in this moment, it's it's like being thrown through a hoop because Woodward, Bob, uh, Robert Redford, um, throughout this entire movie is having these great conversations, teasing out information from people, trying to extract all this stuff. And there could not be anything stranger than, I've just been through a terrible ordeal. <laughs> My wife has been kidnapped <laughs> in the middle of a call that you're like, are you financing <laughs> illegal activity through <laughs> Nixon? And you can sort of see him shrug it off. And it's just one of those things that, you know, much later on um, uh, in, in, in different things you go back and you're like, no, th there was a lot of weirdness around Watergate. And and this is why this was the biggest news story in the world for about three or four years, because there were so many weird characters. There were so many weird instances. And this is one little thread that, you know, kind of has to happen in the, in the context of the story. And then they just immediately have to brush past it. Yeah, no, it's a fascinating moment, you know, and you know, it's great the way, you know, again, I looked at this a minute, a lot of different ways. Uh, you know, one of the ways is just in terms of journalistic technique, you know, which clearly uh, informs the script and, you know, informs Redford's performance. You know, on the one hand, he starts out kind of tentative when he talks to him. He yes. doesn't say, you know, he doesn't bluster and say, you know, here we are, you know, the cavalry's here, you know. <laughs> he starts out kind of easy. He gentles his way into the conversation. But once he's into it, once he's closing in on what he wants, the piece of information he wants, nothing dissuades him. Yes. You know, Ken Dahlberg tells him this horrible thing has happened. His neighbor <laughs> has been kidnapped. I mean, this is not a story. This actually happened. And, you know, Woodward just says whatever, basically. You know, I need this info from you. I mean, this is not my problem. You know, so he goes from diffident to unstoppable, you know, and that's a, that's a fascinating transition to kind of happen within a minute. And it's been so funny in his other conversations throughout the film, how easily, and this is his great technique, it's like this is his his signature move, is how seemingly effortlessly he's able to extract information out of people and just keep people talking. But in these moments, yeah, he starts yeah. to, you know, he's starting to mirror his partner in a way, um, Bernstein, where he's like, he's a dog with a bone in this moment and nothing, <laughs> nothing's going to distract me. Even a kidnapped wife, as you know, a neighbor's, a kidnapped neighbor's wife, rather, it's, um, it's never going to distract him in this moment. And it's, a, again, you know, for you, you've articulated this so many ways in your, you know, your great writing, whether it's your books or compendiums of what you've written about films or just film reviews itself. It's like you're resting a whole movie right now in this minute of the movie on internal, the internal turmoil of 
Redford doing Woodward at this moment and just this terrific, emphatic, very identifiable voice performance from Dahlberg on the other side and another sequence in this movie that is, you know, just jam-packed with all this stuff about journalistic technique but then also performance, like cinematic performance and just enrapturing you with not much. A great, a beautifully composed shot but just resting it all on Redford. No, that's a, that's the key point, and that's what fascinated me in watching this. You know, again, watched it again uh, several times to prepare for talking to you. You know how much this. You know, we're used to saying scenes like this scene are not cinematic. You know, yes. the camera doesn't move. Yes. You know, when in fact you can see because of how powerful it is, it's intensely cinematic because, as you said, because of Redford's performance, because of the way Goldman structured the script. You know one man sitting at his desk looking at you, it turns out to, you know, hold you absolutely. I mean, this is brilliant technique all the way around. Where where does Alan J. Pakula stand for you? Because I think right now I'm, I've, I've been hearing of, um, uh, and unfortunately it hasn't come out in Australia yet and due to the sort of current health crisis, um, it's, it's festival run slash cinematic run in the United States has sort of been de- delayed and deferred. But, the cinema of Alan J. Pakula now, just now, seems to be being recognized in among some of those peers that he was working with at the time, even though he's so universally praised by his peers and the quality of his films pound for pound are just unbelievable. Can you talk to me a little bit about your, your experience with his movies and, and, and is he a guy that really stands up for you? Well, as you say, you know, I think more and more as I think about the movies, as I re-experience this film and as makes me think about wanting to see Clued again, wants me to, makes me want to see Parallax View again. Yes. You know, I think, uh, you know, he is, sometimes directors come back into, sometimes directors have a quality that suits a particular time. Yes. And I think, you know, his quality really seems to suit our time. You know, he's a meticulous director, but he's got, uh, there's a lot of unease in his films. You know, he's not a film for happy days. He's not a director for happy days, Yes. you know, and, uh, we are not in happy days. And I think, you know, God willing, when everything comes back, uh, I think what you're referencing, I believe there's a new documentary on him that's about to come out. Yes. I have not seen it, but, uh, you know, I think we are in, in some ways for uh, a reappreciation of Alan Pakula just because of how good he was and how his sensibility suits where we are now. It's a great point. It's a great point being, being completely of your time. And I think that that's, in this moment when we were just referring to what is cinema, um, a guy sitting at his desk, I think in, in 1976 or really any time in the seventies, Robert Redford being at his desk is the man of his time. We can sit here, we can watch him, we can watch him boiling water and, and, and he is the guy, you know, being exactly of the, of the moment of the time. Um, he's the guy. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, there's one of the oldest cliches, uh, you know, of the movie business is, you know, the camera likes him. Yes. You know, and the camera very much likes him. It's you know, true, we can yeah. watch him, you know. It's, it's we're not saying, you know, enough of him. I want some stuff happening. <laughs> we're, we're, we could sit there for quite a while watching him on the phone. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we do. And I think that that's a, it's such a strange thing to think about with both these actors and this whole alchemy of this great collective of like we're going to rest whole epic scenes just on in this office space in the desk now especially because it's you and and 
and you were actually there and you referenced this film being time travel. I just can't get enough. And in, and in modern offices, it happens too. But, you know, when you've got old school televisions, um, people tend to crowd around them in older movies, which is nice. Um, I, I just can't get enough of the construction of this scene and watching how well all of these background actors do to just give you a sense of like other things are happening in this newsroom. And right now what he's doing, chasing his tail or, you know, <laughs> trying to get information out of Ken Dahlberg in this strange conversation. Um, things are just happening. News is breaking on the TV. People then just break out, go back to typing at their desks. That energy is just so great because I feel like so many movies, even though we're having this moment underscored for us, there's a moment of the performance and, and, and it's a decision in the script obviously is people are just making noise going about their business on the other side. And, and there's a moment where Redford actually has to put his hand up to his ear because he can't yes, hear yes. Dolberg. And I just love that touch because it's like this guy is in the middle of doing this thing. And that is a decision, you know, Pacula doesn't have to make him do that. The script doesn't have to make him do that to tell the story, but it's just such a, I don't know, it's that really relatable experiential thing that we've just got happening right now as we're watching this. Absolutely. No, I, I noticed the more that I watched this minute, you know, the multiple times I watched it, the more I noticed that stuff. Yes. The more I started to focus on the background action because for two reasons. Number one, it's impeccably done. It's placed just right. It's not just random people. They're in a little you know, group just really they should be in the frame and the way they break up just is choreographed beautifully. So this is done very, very smartly. And also it makes the point, which is a key point, that this is how newsrooms work. You know, newsrooms don't respect reporters. You know, no <laughs> one says, oh, no, you know. I mean, everyone is always talking. If you have work to do, you do it in the chaos. You know, the notion that, oh, he's on an important story, let's be quiet. This just doesn't happen. doesn't work that way. It works just the way you saw it on the screen. So, again, it's a great moment both cinematically and realistically, and that's, that's a rare thing. Uh, one of my best friends is, a, is an Australian journalist, and she, uh, she, she makes me marvel at her um, because she'll occasionally visit or she'll stay with my, my, myself and my wife and my young family. She'll crash at our place. And when she's working, my kids can be doing the most chaotic things in the house, and she's sitting there often sometimes filing something. And I'm like, I don't know how you're doing that. I don't know how you're being able to type right now <laughs> in this absolute lunacy that is happening around you, but I definitely respect it. It's just like – she's like, I, I – I grew up in newsrooms. No one is quiet. Nothing is quiet. Nothing, you know, you exactly. have to write in amongst a tornado of people who are doing other and more important stories or having loud phone conversations or watching something break, all those wonderful things. Yeah, yeah no, no. I mean, it's true. I mean, if you're going to work on a newspaper, you you know, at least, in, you know, probably to a certain extent still today, but it's quieter in newsrooms now. Yes. But, you know, you really do learn to, you have to type no matter what, you know, you can't, you know, there's no quiet little corner you can go to. It just doesn't work that way. Now, in this scene, again, we've got this beautiful split diopter shot. This movie is full of the split diopters, but I feel like it's 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 not just a technical feat. It, it also feels like um, getting you a little bit more into the spaces of the movie because it's like it is just, again, underscoring and heightening what we're doing um, in in this is it, when when you look back on it, it's like, is that a Pacula signature? Because it, for me, or a Willis signature, I'm not sure what the, the, the full history of it is, but so many people have brought it up and I just thought it'd be remiss of me not to 
talk to you about it with your technical knowledge, like while we're sort of looking at this particular scene, because it's just, I think it's a t when, when now I see it after watching and scrutinizing most of the minute, 50 minutes of this movie now um, for recording purposes. But when I scrutinize this, it's now a technique that I, when I see it in films, I'm like, I, I like the use of it I or, or I'm puzzled at the use of it. But I think it's it's a technique that can be really, really exceptionally powerful when you're trying to make someone feel like they're interacting with space. Exactly. No, it's uh, it works remarkably well in this film. It is so immersive. Yes. You know, you really almost feel like you're that person. Yes. You know, and yeah. uh, that, it's really a great, you know, I mean, I don't know whose idea it was to use it for this film. I don't know if it was Pakula's idea or if it was Gordon Willis's idea, but it's just, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. Now, talking about the great William Goldman a little bit earlier, this is his second Oscar winning script. I mean, has there been a better early run of, you know, great scripts from a person um, almost ever than, than William Goldman at this time. And, 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 you know, could you, could you talk a little bit about his influence? Because I think that there's something here that, you know, some of those great filmmakers and, and, and in both, whether it's now gone down the line of television or, or into, into drama, um, like David Fincher and Aaron Sorkin, th there are filmmakers out there who seem to be his like acolytes and disciples that have gone off and, and always hold this movie in exceptionally high regard and his films just in high regard. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, the films like this show you, I mean, even though sometimes in Hollywood, you know, classically, and I think it's still true to a certain extent, you know, the writer is devalued. People don't think the writer is as important a person as he or she is. Yes. And really, this is a film where it's so clear that words count. Words <laughs> make a difference. Yes. You know, and it's not only the words that, the, the, you know, the characters say, but the the script. I mean, it's kind of... It's fascinating parallel that it's a film about words. It's a film about journalism. It's a film about what's being written. And it's also exceptionally written itself. Yes. And that's a wonderful combination. You know, and he was just, you, you watch the script and you see, you know, if you're paying any kind of attention, you see how important the script is. You see how important the structure is, the dialogue, the way things are set up. I mean, this is just a model of film. And, you know, I'm happy it won an Oscar. You know, it, it well deserved it. Yes, I mean you better than almost anyone in the world would know. Uh, would, would know the the rigmarole and the 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 carnival that surrounds the Oscars and uh, how how deeply unjust they seem. Uh, sort of, especially when oh, you reflect. Yeah. Some some years they get it so right, and you're like, how did that even happen? How did you get? How yeah. did you, how, how did you get the Godfather Part One and Two? How did you how did you make that happen? Um, because other years it goes so wrong. Um, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about also from just a, uh, um, a sort of historical or films that play in that sort of docudrama space. One of the things that strikes me about this film is that it's hugely stylistic in some respects and, you know, the deep throat scenes, particularly and some of the night interview scenes, some really great, just technical choices and artistic choices around, you know, dwarfing these characters as they drive out into the Washington streets, etc. But I, I find it hard to articulate. So I wonder if you've, if you've got a take is I find it hard to articulate the difference with presidents as opposed to other films who play in the docudrama space, because they either feel overtly stylized too stylized, get swamped in the stylization. But president seems to navigate this thing. Like you said, that time travel specificity versus 
these deeply stylized moments. And it's like the marriage of these two things that work so perfectly and, and it's not losing one for the other. Does, does that, does that make sense? Cause I'm trying to figure oh, out, I'm, tr I'm trying to figure that out myself in, in this project. Yeah. I mean, again, I think really in some ways with great films, with great works of art, there's almost no figuring them out. You can just <laughs> see them and admire them. Uh -oh. You know, uh -oh. if people knew. Ken, <laughs> Ken, I think if there's no figuring them out, then I've just, this is, this, this project's over. <laughs> this, <laughs> no, no, no. But no, you just, can, you know, there's kidding. a lot you can say, you know, there's a lot you can say, but you know, I mean, I know exactly what you're talking about. I mean, the, the dark scene, you know, Gordon Willis, as you know, his nickname was the Prince of Darkness. Yes. You know, he was, he was a, a cinematographer who really excelled at this noir type lighting at, you know, the dark garages, the shadows you can't quite see through, you know, darker than dark, you know, <laughs> gets you really in your soul. You really feel the darkness and how unnerving it is, but he manages not to go too far. I mean, that's, what's brilliant about it. He doesn't over stylize it. He doesn't, take it to the point where you say, oh, this is just nonsense. You yes. Know, he's overdoing it. He hits it just right. It's just enough to be disturbing, to kind of unsettle us, to give us a sense of how disturbing and unsettling the whole situation was for Woodward and Bernstein, but it doesn't hit it too hard. And to hit it just right is just a gift. And it's not even a gift that everyone has every time out. This time out, they hit it just right. Yeah. It's, it's, you, you feel like, um, in anything, you're trying to capture some of the same energy of what works from any other project. It's like, oh, that really worked and it could be could be applicable for this next project, but it doesn't sometimes, you know, like you said, the struck. I think that that's something we haven't talked as much about. So I'll, I'll, I'm taking a mental note here aloud to, is just how deeply important structure and pace in, in amongst the dialogue in the scripting, particularly because the structure and having the timing to go to the next, to, to keep these guys going forward and, 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 and progressing is so essential and just so critical in this movie. But yeah, you can see that other people are trying to, you know, they look at this content and they ape it. And a great anecdote that I've learned from this project so far is um, the co-writer of the post, Liz Hanna has come on the show and we had a really great chat about, you know, how strange that her, her second, um, oh, sorry, her first project rather was dealing with these Titanic historical characters uh, in a film. And she remembers Spielberg, Mr. Spielberg setting up a shot and she goes, wow, that, that shot's very peculiar. And he was so touched that he like touched his heart and said, thank you. Like, and so it's so funny that, um, <laughs> it, you know, it's so funny that even, even Alan Pakula's technique and Gordon Willis and these guys, you know, that's a, you know, his contemporaries um, uh, really, really still get touched by what he does and what he brings to it. Well, you know, for a film to retain its qualities after so many years is quite extraordinary. There's a lot of great, even great films we see and we say, yes, I understand why this was a big sensation back in the day, but it doesn't quite work for us the same way. And this film almost magically works the same way. Uh, and that's quite an accomplishment. And I think, you know, I'm sure other directors realize this and are impressed by it. One, one final thing before, um, before I let you go and, and thank you so much is you, you knew the, you knew the guys as part of this. What's it like to go see a movie at the time? And obviously you guys were impressed at, at, at the time that it was released, but what's it like to go out with your workmates and go, look at this, like, look at this. And if you knew Carl quite well, it's like, Hey Carl, like 
there's Dustin Hoffman as you. Like, how is that? How's because I, 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 I definitely don't have a chance to ask that all the time. But like, what was that such a strange thing? Because I think all of us, Kenny, as we've already said about the great Robert Redford or even Dustin Hoffman, like if you had a choice of someone to play you, you know, you, you you'd pick a Hoffman and Redford in a heartbeat. It's like, yeah, look, if, if the movie's about me, I, I'd want one of these guys to play me. It was it was completely surreal. It was so surreal you almost couldn't talk about it. Yes, you know. Yes, I mean you couldn't sit around and say, "Hey, isn't it amazing <laughs> that uh, you know Carl Gessel? You know, it's Dustin Hoffman playing you. Isn't that wild? You know, it was too strange to even mention. Yes. But you know, let me tell you one final thought I had. I remember very, as I said, I was at the world premiere. I remember very vividly sitting. It was held at the Kennedy Center, and I was sitting in the audience. And there's a scene, uh, you know, it may have been the, the Dahlberg scene. It may have happened to Dustin Hoffman. There's several things that happened several times in the film where the, you know, either Woodward or Bernstein gets hung up on. He's doing an interview on the phone, and the person he's talking to just hangs up. Yes. And yeah. I had several thoughts simultaneously while that happened. The first thought is, oh my God, how romantic. You know, how exciting, you know, someone hung up on him, how dramatic, you know, and then literally almost immediately afterward, I had the thought, wait a minute, you know, you work at the Washington Post, you've been hung up on, it's not romantic, it's not exciting, it's really depressing, Yes, you know, and what this made me realize is the extent that films, even if they're not trying to do it, even if they're trying to avoid it. Films glamorize, films romanticize. There's something about putting an event on a big screen with actors, with great cinematography, that elevates a story. And so, you know, it really taught me a lesson about how difficult it is for films to be realistic in terms of reproducing reality. Firstly, I just want to say thank you, because I, I can't, I don't think I can go any further with, uh, without saying thank you. Uh, Kenny... If if you weren't already called the maestro, I just want to say thank you because I feel like I've uh, I've I've really uh, already had such an insightful you know it feels like only thirty minutes but thank you so much for being a part of this program I think it's deeply richer for having someone with your experience and just your clarity um, when it comes to sort of incisively capturing a thing um, so thank you so much for being a part of all the president's minutes and uh, I can certainly say that if anyone's a fan of this show or the other shows that we've done like One Heat Minute I, I'm sure that we're familiar they're A familiar with your work and B looking forward to uh, your your less day to day beat film writing and your longer form sort of critical takes that are that are forthcoming in wherever they come so uh, look I just want to say a huge thank you it's an honour um, to have you on the show and, and finally um, to have the first guest and perhaps the only guest that has been called to be impeached um, uh, like Nixon <laughs> like Clinton uh, to be on the show and uh, it's just a, a, an absolute thrill to chat to you well it's been a real pleasure for me too I mean it's great to be able to go into the specifics of this film in such detail to have the leisure to talk and to have such great questions from you Blake it's really been great you know I feel like uh, I'm energized to go on with the rest of my life <laughs> Thank you so much, Ken. Okay, thank you again. The maestro, Kenny Turin. What an absolute treat. What a 
I mean, pound for pound, one of the most insightful guys I think I've ever spoken to and one of the most insightful film minds. So wonderful to chat to him on this show. And uh, I want to say a huge thanks again to Justin Chang for connecting us. A huge thanks to Kenny for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of All the President's Minutes. As I said, our frequency has picked up significantly. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for following along. Um, If you haven't, please subscribe, rate, review, share the shows. We're keen uh, for more people to hear the amazing content that is coming out of One Heat Minute Productions, whether that is all the President's Minutes, whether that is Increment Vice, whether that is When It Returns, Miami Nice, and whether that is our upcoming shows like Zodiac Chronicle. Thank you all for listening. Thank you all for sharing. Thank you all for being a part of this journey 50 episodes in. And now 88 to go and uh, an incredible cachet of guests come an incredible film to catalog and so many more voices political social historical journalistic and filmic waiting on the sidelines to talk to us and uh, we can't wait for you to hear those conversations When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.